All right, so before we get into our text in 1 Peter, I want to look at something that is so important to who we are. All of these songs that we sung this morning had to do with redemption. And I want to take a look at this concept of redemption a little bit. Why is this something we talk about so much and what is it? Well, first and foremost, redemption is slavery language. I mean, this comes out of the slave trade that has gone on since almost the beginning of mankind. Where a lot of times if you got yourself into debt, you could be sold. Or if you were born into a slave class, you were beholden to someone else. And it's a little different than what we think of as modern slavery. But sadly, this still goes on today. Where people are forcefully bought and sold in many countries around the world. And slavery throughout most of of history was accepted and expected. Many cultures had some kind of provision for slavery. And so you'll hear a lot of people object to scripture because they talk about slavery as a norm. Well, it was. And in many senses, it was indentured servitude. And there are, there are different aspects of slavery. But I, I don't want to get into the technical aspects of it. But why are these words used? Why does redemption make its way into our biblical vocabulary? And what does the gospel have to do with slavery? And what is the real truth about redemption? So I thought the best way to illustrate this is to look at some of our own sordid past here in America and look at what slavery looked like here and some testimonies coming out of slavery to help bring this into perspective. Because when you are in the position of slavery, there is a a hopelessness that you can't get yourself out of. And yes, there were a lot of evils done throughout history and some falsely done in the name of Christianity and and our own country. And this is just distorted Christianity. We're going to talk about what the gospel looked like in our slave age. When the first great awakening came right before and around the time of the revolution, you could tell who the real believers were because they did not discriminate who they proclaimed the gospel to. They recognized that everyone was made in the image of God and whether he was free in terms of human in human terms, They wanted them to understand that you could be free for the eyes of God, that you could be free in a a redemption that is beyond your present circumstance. And so great revivalist preachers like Jonathan Edwards and like George Whitfield and the Methodist movement in particular would do these open air revivals and everyone was welcome. And in those, many African slaves came and heard the gospel and were transformed I didn't realize how many slave testimonies there are. They're amazing. If you want to look them up and read them, it's so encouraging. And so one I wanted to share with you. Guy's name is Peter Randolph. He was a slave until 1847 when he was freed. Uh, He was interviewed toward the end of his life. And he would describe what those slave meetings would would look like. Now let's, let's just quickly set the tone for what their day looked like. They worked six days a week. Their masters who considered themselves Christians in name only, I would say, would give them a Sunday off, sort of. But they really were dawn till dusk. And many of the slave owners did not want them to, to become Christians because they knew that if a slave knew he was a Christian, he knew that he would have true freedom in Christ and that he would be equal in the eyes of God with his master. And they couldn't have that. It was bad for business. So what these slaves would do is they would sneak out into the uh, forest and the swamps at at nighttime, and they would have to, they would gather a circle, or they'd have to to whisper. They'd try to get far enough out so that the masters couldn't hear them. 
And they would repeat the messages that they heard from the evangelists. So this is how Peter describes it. He says, after arriving and greeting one another, men and women sat in groups together. And there was preaching by the brethren. And then praying and singing all around until they generally felt quite happy. This is where it gets interesting. He says, the slave forgets all his suffering except to remind others of the trials during the past week, exclaiming, thank God I shall not live here always. I love that. Thank God I shall not live here always. In the midst of true slavery, they did not experience temporary redemption, but through the gospel, they experienced real redemption, where they were redeemed from their slavery to sin. They were redeemed above and beyond their present circumstances. And the power of the gospel transformed lives. There are still so many great stories and the continuing tradition of the gospel in black churches because of faithful slaves in the middle of the forest who are preaching this gospel of redemption. And I love what um, another ex-slave went on to say that Many black preachers didn't know a letter in the Bible or how to spell the name of Christ. But when they opened their mouths, they were filled. And the plan of salvation was explained in a way that all could receive it. That is the power of the gospel. You can't even spell the name of Christ, but by what has gone on in your life, everyone is filled, blessed, and understands. So when you think you're not equipped to share the gospel, when you think you're not, you don't know enough scripture, that is an amazing testimony that should be an encouragement to us all. And so God's plan of salvation that they spoke about is done through a redeemer. What is a redeemer? Biblically speaking, there was this this thing called a kinsman redeemer. The best example we have of that in scripture is Boaz in, in the book of Ruth. It was a family member who would redeem one of his family out of their current situation for the sake of the family name. And so Boaz did that for Ruth and her family so that his relative's name could be continued and that the land would stay in the family. We can't get into this, but if you want to read more on what real redemption looks like for our situation, you can look at Romans 6, 15 through 23. But as our kinsman redeemer, what did Christ's work accomplish? Well, redemption means one thing. It's it's a trade, but there's so many more aspects of that. And and a couple of those we're going to look at today. But here's what I want you to understand about redemption being all-encompassing. First, it involves a ransom. It involves taking someone out of their situation by paying a price. Taking someone out of their their slavery, in our case, is sin and bondage by paying a price. There must be a purchase. There must be a ransom before there is redemption. And with redemption also comes salvation. Salvation is freedom, being saved from that. The ransom, the purchase is one thing, the salvation is another. And just like slaves were unable to purchase themselves out of their situation, us in our sin are unable to pay the price. But our Savior was also our salvation in addition to our ransom. And in that redemption, there's reconciliation. Because for us, not only are we separated by sin, but we, we are connected to our father of the world. We no longer belong to 
the family of God in our sin. And so there is reconciliation in redemption that reconciles us to God, that brings us into his family. There's adoption that comes in reconciliation. And we're adopted as children of obedience, as we saw last week. So there's a lot going on here. And we also saw last week that we're not just adopted as children to be like our old selves and our old feudal ways. We're adopted into holiness, to be set apart like God is set apart. Christ's righteousness not only brings us into the family, but makes us holy, recreates us in his image so we can reflect him and reflect his glory. And all that leads to our hope. Because of everything we just said, we can have a hope and an assurance that no one else has. So that being said, redemption is essential. We, we look at it and we sing about it every week because we are nothing without our redemption. So we're going to walk through our text this morning. And there's always a challenge when we go through, through Peter and Justin and I talk about these, these texts. Each verse is almost a sermon in itself. And it's so rich and there's so much. And we're, we're only going through a few verses, but there's so much to cover. So we want you to get the depths of our redemption, the depths of what Christ accomplished and the depths of what it means for us in our everyday life. So let's uh, turn to 1 Peter. I want to read through last week's text and this one. So we're going to start in verse 13, um, although we're going to focus on verses 17 through 21. 1 Peter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Who through him are believers in God. Who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent, all-sovereign, great, glorious, good, loving, merciful, and just. I can't believe that you chose to share your salvation with us. You chose to explain yourself to us so we can even begin to comprehend who you are. Lord, it is so humbling what Christ did, he did for us. He did what we could not do and all that he accomplished in his redemption. Lord, let this be a sobering, fearful reminder to us and a joyous call to worship and praise and exclamation for what you accomplished for us. Let this text come alive. Let our redemption and our salvation breathe anew through the text of your word. 
And let us as people more and more reflect you, reflect your love and your justice and your mercy to be beacons in this world. We love you and praise you because we can only do so in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So as we saw last week, holiness is not just a set of do's and don'ts. It's a family trait. It is our family crest. We are called and adopted to be holy as our Father is holy. It is our very identity. And only when we understand our holiness, our set-apartness, our otherness from this world, can we look at this next verse. Verse 17. And if you call on Him as Father... Before we go any further, uh, this translation says, and if you call on him who is father. Uh, in, in the Greek, the sense is more, since you call on him who is father. All right, because of all this uh, understanding about holiness, now you know who you are as children of obedience. Since all this is true, you call on him as father. And there, now we're taken uh, into the familial realm. He's bringing us into the living room. We can call on him as father, and that is a beautiful thing. We can call on him intimately in prayer. We can come to him without, without fear because of our father. But yet, it doesn't get long before he says, call on him his father who judges impartially. We don't want to forget that he's judged as well. And so what does he mean by judge here? Um, it it is, is in a sense that legal, uh, the, the legal understanding of the guy behind the bench with a gavel. But in a biblical sense, it's more than that. It's someone who governs, someone who rules. The uh, judges didn't just pronounce decisions. They actually uh, governed and they watched over the people and they guided the people. And they were the ones responsible for justice in the lives of the people. So that is our God. He is a good father. We love to sing those songs, right? But we don't as naturally think you're a good, good judge. That's, That's who you are. We tend to shy away from those things. It's easier to think of God as a father than to think of him as a judge. But the Israelites sung as him as a great judge. If you look at the Psalms over and over and over again, the great praise Psalms were praising him for his judgment and that you will judge the nations and that you will judge with equity and that you will save your your, your people. They understood that you couldn't divorce the one from the other. And so we can't either. And we have this tension between our love and intimacy with the father and this humble fear of his righteousness and our need for salvation because he judges but yet thankfully he judges impartially I mean we talked about this in in our James study this word impartial partial literally means that God doesn't see the face Uh, like we we see in, in 1 Samuel that God doesn't see how people sees he sees the heart Thank God that God doesn't judge like us. Because every one of us in this room, the moment we see someone, we've already decided certain things about them by the outward appearance. God doesn't look that way. He judges impartially. And thankfully for us, he judges according to Christ's work and not ours. But yet, there are consequences for our deeds. And that's why Peter tells us to conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. When he says fear, uh, we, we think horror movies and we think uh, the, all the things that scare us in our lives. Uh, but this is more of a holy, reverent fear. This is a humbling before God. 
This is not forgetting or presuming upon the grace of God. Because we know that if we are in Christ, our sins are forgiven. But it doesn't mean we go on sinning. So we humble ourselves and we are fearful before God. We talked about this last week in James. That God gives grace to the humble. And that before we can approach God, we must submit to him first. We must humble ourselves first. And then we can fearfully walk with him. And like James said, your laughter must be turned to mourning. And so there's this idea in the Christian life that we don't uh, laugh at our own sin and arrogance. But we mourn over our sin. We are beaten up over our own state. And we humble ourselves and throw ourselves at our Father's feet. Knowing that he is merciful toward us. And that is how we walk fearfully and confidently. Not in our own arrogance and our own abilities, but in what Christ has done for us. And then we can rejoice because Christ did it. It is finished. He bought us from our slave master. But yet, Peter says in verse 17, that you're going to walk through this in your time of exile. We have been purchased. We have been redeemed in Christ. But yet we're still things still aren't as they should be. We're still in exile from our final home. Goes back to those words of Peter Randolph. Thank God I shall not live here always. It came very clear to the slaves when they lived in seven-day-a-week oppression that this is not their final home in the gospel. Sometimes it's hard for us to remember that because we live in luxury and we live in comfort. That this is not where we're to build our kingdom in the here and now. In the time of our exile, it's just a season. These things are temporary. God is working out his plan of salvation in his people. And one day he will bring it all to consummation. And that is what we look forward to. But we are apart from our true home. Uh, One of the commentaries I read this week, Edmund Clowney, I love this phrase. He says, Christians are extraterrestrials. You know, terra is land and extra is beyond. Uh, We are, in a sense, extraterrestrials, or he says, neo-terrestrials. So, um, new earth people or beyond earth people. That we have this tension as well, that while we walk, we we walk as everyone else. But kind of like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where they, they, they look the same on the outside, but inside there's something very different. And that's us. We're in this, this weird tension that we talk to people who don't know Christ, and we, we wake up the same way, and we eat, and we go to work, and we do all the same things, but yet our hope is different. Our view is different. The way we live and the way we, we, we think is different, because we are not of this world. And that is... Something strange to think about unless you know the truth of redemption. Unless you know the truth of the gospel. Unless you know what you are saved from. So verse 18 is interesting because it begins a hymn of the early church. The way this is written, it has meter to it. Uh, There is alliteration, so they they use the uh, same letters over and over again. Uh, to, to give different verses. So the next few verses are in fact a hymn that is what we understand that the early church would have sung. So knowing that God is Father and Judge, um, 
knowing that we walk fearfully in the time of our exile, verse 18 says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Um, Knowing. Because of the knowledge of our ransom, we can recognize who we are through this redemption. You conduct yourselves in fear because of what we know about Christ. And again, this is not debilitating fear. This is confidently, confident fear in the work of the Lord, not your own works. Ransom, again, we talked about it's that first step in redemption. Uh, Mark tells us that the servant who is Christ came to serve and be a ransom for many. That's who he was. And we can't be obedient. We can't be holy. We can't be a part of that family until we are first ransomed. And what are we ransomed to? And what are we ransomed from? He goes on to say, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your, for, from your forefathers. This word futile is, is similar to idolatry. It's things that have no meaning. It's things that have no foundation. Futile, it is meaningless. Everything before Christ and without Christ is meaningless. And if you try to find meaning in things other than, than Christ, they're going to disappoint you. And they're going to lead to continued slavery. And who are the forefathers? The futile ways of your forefathers. He's talking to Greeks, Gentiles, or is he talking to Jews here? The answer is yes. Because we know the history of the Jews. Their forefathers were much like us. They would... They would see the work of God and then go back to their old ways and then look toward the gods of this, of, of this world. So they're, they're, the futile ways that they responded were something that Peter's telling them, don't look back to what they did. Look toward the Lord. And to the Gentiles, don't go back to your, to your pagan ways. Don't look to all these other gods. They can't save you. There is no ransom in all these other gods. And there's an interesting contrast here. These words are not by accident. We just looked at God as father. And Peter says, don't look to your forefathers. He's he's playing on these two concepts here. You are children of God. Act like your father, not the fathers of the world. So Peter's telling us who our family identity is. You've been adopted into a family out of slandering, thieving, murdering idolaters into a holy family with an eternal inheritance. And that should instill fear in us when we think about whose family are we reflecting? Who are we looking like? Are we looking like our forefathers living according to the father of the world? Or do we look like our father in heaven? And bearing his family crest, his identity, and holiness and set-apartness and righteousness of Christ. I mean, this is black and white, life or death, important stuff for every believer. Because every, if everything we just said is true, we would want nothing to do with our forefathers. Those who came before us living according to the world. And we are able to look forward, as we'll see in a moment, toward our future hope. And our hope that we have that is sure as Christ lived and he died and he rose again. 
You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold. This is not your ordinary redemption from slavery. Slaves were bought and sold with currency, bought and sold with money, gold and silver. You know, silver and gold are the most valuable materials um, because they're also the least perishable. Silver and gold hold up well over time, but even they tarnish and even they perish. But, verse 19, the buts in the Bible, they're so strong because you look at these things like silver and gold that the rest of the world values, but with the precious blood of Christ. It is precious. Blood has always symbolized life throughout the ancient cultures. Uh, God told his people not to drink the blood of animals because that's where the life was. You would literally be drinking their, their life. And so the blood is symbolic. In order for there to be life, life must cover death. Blood must cover the ugliness. And so the blood of Christ is the most precious commodity that has ever walked on this earth. And that means our redemption was expensive because silver and gold and diamonds and everything else was not enough. It took the most valuable commodity ever, the perfectly effective blood of Christ. The only acceptable currency in our ransom is Christ's blood. Does it make you think about how important we were to God? shows our value that Christ's very life, his very blood, was the only thing that would save us and was spilt for us. As I thought about this this, this week, it just, if I could have like slumped into myself, I, I would have. Like I can't get humbled enough to think about how valuable Christ said we are. He was sent with his very blood, his very life for us. Hebrews 9.12 talks about what this accomplished. Um, Hebrews is a great book written to the Hebrews. Written about this transition from the sacrificial system where they would slaughter animals every day. This is why we no longer have an altar up front. Because there are no longer sacrifices needed. Bulls and goats cannot atone for our sin. We now have a table because we have fellowship with the Lord. What did Christ accomplish? How did Christ fulfill the sacrificial system? Rome, uh, Hebrews 9.12, it'll be up on the screen. It says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of, bull, of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. How can we know that our salvation is sure? Because it's in Christ's blood. It is an eternal redemption. He walked into the holy of holies as the high priest once and for all and gave the final sacrifice. For every sin of every person who will ever put their faith and trust in him. Completely. That's what our hope is based in. There is nothing more sure than the blood of Christ. And there is no need to continue to try to atone for our own sins. We humble ourselves before the Lord and we say thank you. Father, thank you for our brother Christ who came in our place. And his blood was like that of a lamb. 
makes us think about Egypt, right? How were they, they saved out of their slavery? They took a spotless lamb and they wiped the blood over the doorposts. It saved them from their slavery. But it was still incomplete. Because as we saw, even though they were saved out of their slavery, there was a partial redemption. They still sinned. And a lot of them died in the wilderness because they were held on to the futile ways of their forefathers. But Christ, as the perfect spotless lamb, like John the Baptist declared, behold the lamb of God that will take away the sins of the world, came humbly. Like we read in Isaiah, not saying a word. Without blemish. He was perfect in character and pure. Without spot. He was perfect externally. He was perfect in conduct. Perfect in in works. This is amazing. That Christ, the creator of the universe, the king of kings, the one who's going to come back with a sword, came as a humble lamb for us. Not saying a word, but to shed his blood. This is incredible. And we should be rocked every time we think about this. But we say this so often. We talk about blood and we talk about redemption. We talk about the lamb. Do we ever get apathetic? Do we ever just forget what has been accomplished for us? I know I do. It takes just reading these texts and meditating on them and reminding ourselves of the truth of what he accomplished for us. (laughs) We can just cry out, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise and honor unto thee. Then explains who Christ was, verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. God has perfect foreknowledge. He knows all things. This is not plan B for him. Before the foundation of the earth, Christ was. And he was made known for us. God's perfect plan His plan of salvation before anything began was ready to be accomplished in in Christ. Um, I love Jesus' prayer in John 17. We get this great intimate picture of Jesus' conversation with with, with the Father. What does Jesus pray for for us? Can you imagine that? I mean, we know what we pray for our kids and the ones that we love. How does Jesus pray for us? John records this prayer in John 17 for us. I love verse 24. Father... I I desire that they also, those according to his name, whom you have given to me, may be with you, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Christ's intercession for us is that we can see his glory, that we can share in the glory of the Father and the Son that was there before the foundation of the earth. Christ wants us to experience that, to see ourselves in that light. Man, I don't love anyone enough to pray that much. I'm not capable of loving anyone enough to pray like that. Because the same way that Jesus prayed uh, to the Father about their relationship before the foundation of the earth, Peter tells us in Ephesians, Peter, sorry, Paul tells us in Ephesians 1 4, and this one won't be on the screen, that even as he chose us, in him before the foundation of the world. Same language. God's plan in us was before the foundation of the world. This is great. That, this word is so important, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons 
through Jesus Christ. For the foundation of the world, for us to be holy, for us to be set apart. This is consistent through scripture. Redemption is not just, hey, you saved me from my sins. I punched my ticket. Yay. No, this is so much greater. This is we are adopted into a family, perfect and holy as sons, along with Christ to see the glory that he has had through all time. Wow. Lord, forgive us when our gospel is too small. Forgive us when our gospel is smaller than that. Back in 1 Peter, he was was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time. Christ has always been there, but he's only realized, he's only uh, visualized, put into skin, manifest for what? For the sake of you. The God of all creation put on skin, breathed air, pumped blood that would be shed out for us, for us. This is all for the sake of you. Are you kidding me? When you hear words like that, it's easy to be reminded that we walk in reverent fear. That we walk humbled before God. Because all this happened so that he could redeem us. Who? Through him are believers in God. Christ is not only our means for salvation, but our object. Our object of belief, not just our means for belief. We believe in him, but also believe through him by his work. It was completed for us. Everything is through Christ. So that we have that access to the Father that he prayed for in John 17. Jesus brings it full circle. Not only am I going to ask my father for it, but I'm going to accomplish it to make sure that it is secure, that it is an eternal redemption. Who through him are believers in God. God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Full redemption is not possible without the resurrection. There is not life unless there is life after death. Unless there is death for our sin. Unless that penalty, that ransom has been paid. And it died with our sin and it is rose again. Accomplished by Christ. Secured in the Father. Continued by the Holy Spirit. It will not fail. It cannot fail. If our redemption fails, God fails. We know that that's not going to happen. Think about this salvation, this redemption that was planned out before the foundation of the earth. Sending Christ to resurrect him so that we could be resurrected into fellowship with the Father. And this all culminates in our hope being in God. God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope would be in God. All this is coming about. Peter is saying all this so that we could have hope in God. So that we would know where our hope is. And that Christ gets the glory. And the Father sees all things reconciled to him. This plan of salvation is so grand. 
what greater hope could we have than one planned out from eternity, knowing our sin, knowing our iniquity, knowing our transgression, accomplished perfectly by the Son, sealed by the Holy Spirit, and held for us as an eternity, as an inheritance in eternity. How much greater could our hope be? So as we conclude this morning, I just want you to think and just meditate on this this week. All that was accomplished through Christ for our hope should evoke fear within us. Reverent fear, humility, mourning over our own sin, and joy. Because our brother is our redeemer. And our Father has welcomed us home as obedient children, holy and blameless for His glory and our hope. And Christ put the ultimate value on us. And all of the blessings that come from life in Christ were accomplished at that redemption by His blood. I want to read uh, a passage quickly before we close. Titus chapter 2. We went through the book of Titus, but this passage is so powerful. And Titus sums this up so well. I want us to read through it slowly. I'm going to take my time as I read. I just want you to think through and contemplate as Titus wrap, as Paul write, wraps all this up, writing to Titus. He's writing to a young pastor. And he tells Titus in this letter to set up elders, put your church in order. What is of first importance? What does he want Titus to know? It's interesting that in this letter, he follows this pattern of gospel instruction for the church. Gospel instruction for the church. Gospel. And this is one of those gospel proclamations that is just beautiful. Titus chapter 2 verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are jealous for good works. The next verse goes on to say, declare these things. Why are we a people who tell? Because we are told over and over and over again in Scripture how important our redemption is. Declare these things. Don't just whisper them. Thankfully, we can, we can declare them boldly. We have the freedom in our culture to do that. It hasn't always been the case. And it isn't the case around the world for many believers. Declare these things. The truth of the gospel. I want to close that quote again from Peter Randolph. And that when he says slaves, I want us to think about us being slaves to Christ, slaves to righteousness, exiles in this land. Again, Peter Randolph, the slave, said this. The slave forgets all his sufferings 
except to remind others of the trials during the past week, exclaiming, thank God I shall not live here always. Thank God I shall not live here always. Let's pray. Our great and merciful God and Father, perfect judge and ruler over all, All mercy, all love is yours. All praise and honor and glory is due to you. Thank you for your redemption. Thank you for the work of your son. Thank you for paying the price we couldn't. Thank you that redemption doesn't just redeem us from slavery. It welcomes us into a home. It gives us Christ's righteousness. It makes us children of obedience so that we can walk in fear of you. We can love you with our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. And only then can we love others. Because we are to reflect your love. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Humble us when we forget this. Humble us when we become arrogant. Humble us when we rest in our own strength. Humble us when we think that we can add anything to you. And let us rejoice in what you have done and who you are and who you called us to be because of the price you paid. Our Lord, our King, our Mediator, our Savior, Savior, our Redeemer, our Brother, Christ Jesus the Lord, has accomplished all these things. We pray in his precious name. Amen.